Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Meredith Broussard. Meredith is an associate professor at NYU and research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology. Meredith, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm super excited to have you on the show. We last spoke, it was almost exactly a year ago in the context of the release and our screening of the Coded Bias documentary, which you were a part of and you participated in a panel with our community, which was a great discussion and uh, excited to be speaking once again. To get us started, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background. Sure. So it is great to be back. I am a data journalism professor at NYU. I started my career as a computer scientist. I quit to become a journalist. And one of the things that I do is I develop AI systems for investigative reporting. However, when I started doing that, I would go to meet people at parties and I would say, this is what I do. And they would kind of look at me blankly and say, you mean like you make robot reporters? And I would say, no, that sounds awesome, but that's not what I do. (laughs) And so I realized that there was a need to talk more broadly about what AI is and isn't, which kind of led me into the global conversation about AI ethics uh, and my own interests in social justice, in public interest technology uh, have kind of informed my work in that sphere. So I talk about technology, I make technology, and I am excited to talk with you today about the intersection of technology and society. Awesome. Awesome. So the alliance that you direct at NY that's focused on public interest technology, I guess prompts the question for me, when you say public interest technology, what exactly does that mean? Oh, that's such a good question. So the Alliance was founded by my colleague, Charlton McElwain, who is the author of the book Black Software, which I highly recommend if you haven't read it yet. And public interest technology refers to exactly what it sounds like, doing technology that is in the public interest. So there are kind of two ways you can do it. Sometimes public interest tech means making better government technology. It kind of got started as a field after the healthcare.gov debacle after healthcare.gov launched and nobody could buy healthcare through it, people working in the government realized, oh, wait, we really need to modernize things. We need to upskill government workers so that we can do things like develop websites and have effective government technology. So some people who are working in public interest tech are building better government technology. They're doing things like renovating the unemployment insurance system and making sure that healthcare.gov keeps working. Because interestingly, you haven't heard anything about healthcare.gov since its initial struggles. And that's really good. That's exactly what you want in government software, right? Like you want it to work. You don't want to think about it too much. Mm -hmm. So the other way you can do public interest technology is the way that journalists do it which is that you can use technology in order to hold decision makers or algorithms accountable. 
So traditionally, one of the functions of the media is to hold people in power accountable. And so one of the things we do as algorithmic accountability reporters is we interrogate algorithms. You can see a lot of really interesting algorithmic accountability work happening at The Markup. The Markup just published an investigation today, the day we're recording, that analyzes a huge trove of data that they found just unsecured, sitting there, totally unprotected on the internet from a predictive policing software program called PredPol. So this has given millions of recommendations about what it thinks potential crime areas are. And the markup in Gizmodo found this data, analyzed it, and they discovered that the most widely used predictive policing software is systematically targeting and harassing black and brown people, poor people. Uh, So the software is magnifying existing inequalities in the world. And we wouldn't know this unless we had reporters who are creating technology that is in the public interest, that is monitoring the software that's used by institutions. Got it. Got it. One of the things that you are up to this time of year is an invited talk at NeurIPS that you're doing that intersects with a book that you recently completed, not yet published, but completed. I'd love to dig into those two. They're related. The provisional title of the book is More Than a Glitch, What Everyone Needs to Know About Making Technology Anti-Racist Accessible and Otherwise Useful to All. One maybe starting point for the conversation is the book kind of speaks broadly about technology. You're talk is at NeurIPS, an AI conference. You know, what do you see as the relationship between technology and AI? Are the issues in one kind of common to the other? Something I realized recently was that I no longer make a distinction between regular technology and AI, right? So when AI was new, it felt really special And it felt like, ooh, this is exciting and different. But actually, in the past couple of years, AI has become increasingly mundane. There is AI in absolutely everything now. You're activating something like 250 different AI models when you do a single Google search. We are talking over a video link, the automated transcription software that we're going to use to generate a transcript is a kind of AI. So AI is still marketed as something that's kind of woo-woo and exciting, but in practice, it doesn't really feel like that anymore. So I've kind of moved to looking at the whole of technology as kind of integrated. And it reminds me of back in the day when we thought that things on the internet were different than things in real life. (laughs) Right. So we had online culture and we had IRL culture. Everything was called I or E. Yeah. Remember when those (laughs) things were different and now they're not. Right. So AI used to be something different and special. And now it's not like now it's just seamlessly integrated. So one of the things that I do in the book is I just I talk about AI. I talk about other kinds of technology and it's kind of all of a piece. It's all about 
technology and society and what are the intersections and collisions there? Yeah, one of the interesting questions that that raises for me is, you know, we think in the AI community a lot and talk a lot about AI ethics, responsible AI, and a lot of those conversations are grounded in understanding and in an understanding of the way machine learning models are created and biases and all of that. And blurring the distinction between AI and technology suggests that maybe the way to think about these issues isn't from a technology up perspective, but a you know problem down or back perspective. Is that part of what you're encouraging us to do? I think that's a really good way of putting it. My perspective on how do we solve problems of AI ethics is not about starting with the technology. It's about starting with the human problem and looking at what do we already have in place. So for example, let's take insurance. Okay, I realize that maybe this is a boring example for some people, but I promise, (laughs) I promise it's not actually going to be a boring example. So let's take the example of insurance. So there was a big scandal a few years ago when it was discovered that Optum was using models that discriminated against a particular group of people. And it was found that the models were biased. Okay, well, so how do you prove that? How do you prosecute that? How do you remedy that so that it doesn't happen again? And also, how do you figure out whether it's happening at other insurance companies? Are other insurance companies also using models to try and figure out who should be allowed to access certain kinds of healthcare? I believe in this case, the models were predicting that Black people were going to be more expensive patients or that Black people shouldn't have particular kinds of treatments because you should fact check me on this. Mm-hmm. All right. At any rate, we know that the models are making decisions that don't make sense to human beings. And we also know that ML models, machine learning models, will discriminate by default. They will take all of the existing systematic inequality in the world and they will reproduce it, and they will generally not make the right decisions. So we can look at it from a social perspective. We can say, okay, what kinds of laws do we have in place that prevent discrimination? What kinds of regulatory bodies do we have in place to regulate companies? And in the case of insurance, we have state insurance regulatory boards, right? So what do we need? Well, we need the people who work at state insurance regulatory boards to have enough technical savvy to understand that this is happening. We need them to have tools in order to identify bias. And we need the legal system to be able to intervene and say, okay, this model is being discriminatory. Here is the carrot. We're going to start implementing sanctions or whatever. And then we've got the stick of, okay, you're still violating the law. Company, you are in legal trouble now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a systems-wide approach, and it's not necessarily about building an AI to monitor the AI. It's not necessarily about defining human things in propositional logic and then building system against it. We can kind of look at what exists already and build on that instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Part of kind of learning in that story is that we've got existing frameworks around laws, frameworks around auditing and governance that we can rely on to address some of these issues. What's still missing for me is what should Optum have done differently so that they didn't get into the situation that they found themselves in? Does your framework provide some guidance there? Oh, so that's a really good question. And so now we're back to public interest technology. Okay. So one of the things that I talk about in my NeurIP speech is a chapter from the upcoming book that is about public interest technology and about auditing and about how can we build software systems that do not include algorithmic bias. And so my current thinking on this is that we can use all of the really amazing work that's been done recently on mathematical dimensions of fairness, and we can integrate this into our software systems and we can build monitoring systems, continuous monitoring systems to make sure that algorithmic bias is not sneaking its way in. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually working with Kathy O'Neill and her company Orca O'Neill Risk and Algorithmic Auditing, Risk Consulting and Algorithmic Auditing Associates. And we are building a platform for monitoring algorithmic systems for algorithmic bias. Awesome. And what I love about that is that it's kind of, it parallels what's already happening from a technology perspective to do continuous monitoring of machine learning models. It's just asking slightly different questions instead of focusing on accuracy and data drift and other things. This is more focused on monitoring for bias, responsibility, and, and other topics. And so for many organizations that are currently going through the process of building out this monitoring infrastructure anyway, they will be down the path and, and can maybe just plug in some of the, or extend what they're already doing to help them address and prevent these kinds of challenges. Yeah, exactly. And looking for algorithmic bias, auditing for algorithmic bias should be part of the workflow. There's a diagram that I use in the book, comes from Salesforce, and it's about the software development cycle and kind of where should you be thinking about algorithmic bias? And the quick answer is you should be thinking about it at every point <laughs> in the software development cycle. And if you are monitoring and you find bias or you find a problem, you discover that there are a dozen user reports that say, well, you know, we've been having this particular kind of problem and you realize that, oh, the software is discriminating against people of color or it's not working for people who have particular physical phenotype. Then you roll it back. You roll back the software, you address the problem immediately, and this is a different way of doing business, but this is how we should be approaching things. We should be acknowledging that algorithms can cause harms, that this is an ethical issue, that this is a marketplace issue, and this is something that companies need to keep on top of. Same way that they keep on top of other compliance issues. Mm -hmm. Another topic from the book and also your NeurIPS talk is on the intersection of gender and technology. Yeah, How does gender come into play? Sure. So what I do in my NeurIPS talk is 
I kind of read two sections of the book. One is about public interest technology and algorithmic auditing and why I think that's exciting. And the other is about how the new frontier for gender rights is inside databases. Mm-hmm. It started a few years ago when I started actively trying to be a better ally to the trans community. And it also had to do with a problem that I was having, which is that I was running late and I needed to take the train downtown to work and I didn't have any cash. I was living in Philadelphia and at this point on the train, they didn't have ticket machines at every station. So if you didn't have a ticket, you needed to buy a ticket from the conductor using cash on the train but I didn't have any cash and I was late and there was no ticket machine. (laughs) And my husband had a monthly transit pass. And I said, oh, can I use your monthly transit pass? And he said, well, I would give it to you, but it has a big M sticker on it for mail. (laughs) And I don't think that the conductor would let you use it. And I said, well, why does it have a gender sticker? That's Right. That's ridiculous. Why can't I use your trans pass? I said, I, I don't know. Like, that's just the way it is. And I didn't know about this because I had never bought a monthly transit pass before in Philadelphia. So I started thinking about, OK, well, is this a problem for other people like me? That question, is this a problem for other people the way it is for me, is a question that reporters ask ourselves a lot. And it's where a lot of trend stories get started. But then I started asking myself a different question that maybe we should ask more often, which is, is this a problem for people who are not like me, Mm -hmm. right? Who else might be affected by this? And I realized that if you are a member of the trans community, you're probably experiencing all kinds of microaggressions and kind of horrific situations from people selling the transit pass because yeah. The process of the transit pass was you have to go up to the little window and you have to buy your pass and they kind of eyeball you and then put on a sticker. And that did not seem like it was an interaction that was guaranteed to go well in 2013 when I was writing about this. Yeah. I had an interesting experience very much along these lines just recently. I think I was signing up for some airline frequent flyer program or something. and. I must have fat fingered a form or a checkbox or something like that. And I got this error message when I tried to submit it that said that the gender that I had clicked didn't match with the title that I had clicked. Like Mr. or Doctor or whatever that was didn't match with the male-female option. And I forget which one I did incorrectly, but I thought... That's an elaborate rule. (laughs) Right? That is totally unnecessary. And one that, you know, there's all kinds of issues with that. (laughs) Yeah. Let alone that they were both required fields, right? Like That's incredibly out of date. Yeah. And so it turns out that uh, there are a lot of computer systems and a lot of human systems that are set up like this. And it comes from the fact that computer systems, especially large-scale ones, large-scale institutional systems, are designed with 1950s ideas about gender. And inside the systems, gender is often stored as a binary. So you know about the gender binary. It's the idea that there are only two genders, male and female. 
our understanding socially of gender has now expanded. We understand that there are more than two genders, that gender is a spectrum, and people have different gender identities. Gender should be an editable field, for one thing. But a lot of these systems are built so that you can't edit the gender field, so there are only two options. And even further behind the scenes, you have to think about how is that data stored? Okay, so it can be stored as a string, which is a word. It could be stored as a number, okay, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, or it can be stored as a binary, as a 0 or a 1. So when computer systems were made in 60s, 70s, and like through the 90s, really, like until storage got really cheap, programmers were extremely conservative about how much space they used in programs. So if you had a data field, you wanted to use as small a space as possible because storage space was really expensive. Memory was expensive. So storing something as a binary, storing a data field as a binary was a more efficient way of programming. And this ended up being the habit. And so today people still will store gender as a binary field, which prevents it from being editable, prevents you from writing in a gender. So addressing this small piece of computational systems is actually really important for gender equality, for progress. Mm -hmm. Have you seen downstream implications when it comes to using this data and machine learning, AI, those kinds of applications? I'm not too worried about that. I feel like the computers should fall in line with what is happening in society. I don't think that people should bend over backwards to make things easier for computers. Mm -hmm. Another topic that you cover in the book is around education and stuff that you've seen in the educational domain. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Something I wrote for the New York Times a year or two ago was a story about when real students are assigned imaginary grades. So during the pandemic... What does that even mean? (laughs) I know. It's shocking, isn't it? I've always been fascinated by issues of technology and education. I mean, I'm a professor. I use a lot of technology. I teach students how to make technology and also how to critique technology. And I found out that Sometimes people are using algorithmic systems to predict student grades, which is really ridiculous because why aren't you allowing the student to succeed or fail on their own? Like, that's the point of education Mm -hmm. is letting somebody have their own journey through the educational system. And there's this very American idea that you can succeed through education, that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, that we have public education that is available to everybody. And if you want to avail yourself of it, like it's there. And so these predictive systems are really terrible because all they do is predict that poor kids will fail and rich kids will succeed. And what are examples of these systems and where they're used? Oh, so what happened during the pandemic? is that the International Baccalaureate Organization, which is an international high school degree granting organization, Mm -hmm. canceled their usual exams. So IB exams happen in the spring, and they are a little bit like AP exams, 
Yeah. It's a content-based exam in different subjects. And if you get a high enough grade on your IB subject exam, you can get an IB diploma, which is in addition to your regular high school diploma, and it's very prestigious. And you can also get college credit for high enough IB scores. Mm -hmm. So for low-income students, what they can do is they can take a bunch of IB exams and they get good scores, then they can get college credit and graduate in fewer years. Mm -hmm. It's a really crucial piece of maintaining affordability for low-income students. And in fact, most of the students who are enrolled in IB in the U.S. do come from low-income backgrounds. So the IB obviously couldn't have their exams in person during the height of the pandemic. And so they decided to cancel the in-person exams and use an algorithmic system to predict the grades that the students would have gotten had they taken the test, which they didn't do because there was a pandemic. Wow. And I mean, just so they assigned imaginary grades to real students mm-hmm. and the imaginary grades said, OK, well, we're going to predict that the poor kids and the black and brown kids are going to get bad grades. And we're going to predict that the white kids, the rich kids are going to get good grades. And of course, this was a disaster and there were mass thousands and thousands of people who protested, and it was just a really poor decision. So it sounds ridiculous in retrospect, but at the time, the bureaucrats were like, oh, well, we have all this data. Let's just plug it into an algorithm system and let it make a prediction because this techno-chauvinist idea that the computer is just going to step in and solve all of our problems. And the computer doesn't really solve all of our problems. The computer is great, but the computer is not magic. It's just going to replicate the worst of humanity. Mm. If left to its own devices. Exactly. Exactly. So we can't just build computer systems and set it and forget it and expect those computer systems to make good decisions in the social realm. Right. You know, because computers are machines for doing math. Like they literally compute. And mathematical fairness is not the same as social justice. We are past the era where we could just build computer systems to solve the easy problems. We've solved all the easy problems with computers, right? Yeah, yeah. We are left with the hard problems and we're not, well, we have a ways to go. Got it. And and so what were some of your key takeaways for the NURPS talk? What I would love for people to take away from the NURPS talk is an increased understanding and awareness of computer systems as as socio-technical systems. I would love for people to think harder about the way that we build systems and the way that computer systems might be interfering or preventing social progress. And so I would love if, you know, somebody hears the talk and they are building a computer system and they say, oh, well, hey, we need to make the gender field editable. We need to go back and look at our large scale systems inside this bank and make sure that when somebody transitions, we have an easy way for them to update their name, to update their gender. I would love it if somebody would listen to the talk and adapt Google Photos, so it doesn't sneak attack trans folks with pictures of their pre-transition selves, which can be really triggering and alienating. Mm -hmm. I would love if somebody would listen to the talk and say, oh, hey, 
I really want to get involved in public interest technology. And they go to the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology website and find out more information, or they go to the Public Interest Technology University Network website and find out more information and get involved locally. Awesome. All great next steps. Meredith, it's been wonderful catching up. Thanks so much for sharing a bit about what you're up to. Sam, thanks so much for having me. Take care. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.